Welcome back, listeners, to Learning from Friends. It is a wonderful day to be able to sit back and record a podcast episode from my living room table. And today, as you're probably hearing on the microphone, it's a little bit different. This, I think, is my third or fourth recording that I'm doing over Zoom. And I'm getting used to this type of technology of not being face-to-face, but we have this pleasure from over COVID of getting used to using recording technology from long distances to connect with people around the world. Uh, I'm connecting multiple states over. So this is really neat to be able to have that. My name is Kay Curtis, as you listeners know, but by now, hopefully, if you're new, my name is Kay Curtis, your tour guide on learning from friends. I should have done that to start out with everybody, but you know, I get sidetracked as we're going through. I'm twisting knobs and I'm poking stuff on my computer screen rather than doing it in front of me with a normal, like at a table or outside. But as you all know, to start out with the episode, I do my mom's quote of the day. She always sending these lovely things today. And this one comes from a lovely uh, philosopher. Some people say he's really dark and sad. Some people say that he has a very good knowledge of life from it. It's polarizing, but it's Frederick Nietzsche. It's, I was in darkness, but I took three steps and found myself in paradise. The first step was a good thought. The second, a good word. In the third, a good deed. Wonderful words, Nietzsche, to be able to have out there. And some listeners are going to say, it's not Nietzsche. It's said differently to each their own. That's why I'm going to leave it out there for it, to each their own. So my guest today has been very briefly in my life, very, very briefly. I, I think I've seen her three or four times, maybe entirely since knowing her. The connection is a little different from our usual guests where it's like, hey, I bowl with them or I know them from school or I grew up with them. This is one of my wife's friends that she met in college. And so it was kind of like a close kind of contact here briefly. She lived near us for a while when she was beginning out her career and she came to reconnect with my wife. And ultimately we had a couple conversations, which this is where I learned what she does for a living. And I go, wait a second, I love this. Like this is something that's right up my alley with history and all this knowledge that she works with historic preservation and has a lot of architectural history in her background as well. So I'm like, this is so cool. So I've been looking forward to scheduling this out with her. I think we've gone back and forth for a couple of months making to get a date here. And, and it's so exciting that I get to spend this time with her today. Kim, welcome into the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's yes, it entirely is. I look forward to at some point, maybe uh, your cat nipping your legs and you jump in a little bit or, or something like that. We'll see kind of what happens. But as listeners, you're not going to get to see this because of, you're just listening to this. So maybe we'll, we'll hear it ah, or a, stop it. You know, we'll see what happens. You, you might hear her if she decides to jump on the desk and, you know, let me know that it is time to pay attention to her now. Ah. She did that a couple of times during some of my virtual meetings, like in the middle of me saying something, she hopped up and yelled at me. So, I look forward to and hope we get a special guest visit on the podcast today, or maybe my cat will pop up too. Maybe we'll have a dueling cat conversation. Maybe we'll we'll see. start talking to each other. Exactly. That would be great. I'll have to take my headphones off and put it on the cat. So we'll see what happens. But um, Kim, Kim 99.9% of people on this podcast have no clue who you are. Can you paint us a visual picture with your words of who is Kim? Oh, good God. How, how far do you want me, me to go down? Or, you know, we've got plenty of time. <laughs> 
So it started all the way back. No, no, just we're we're not going to go that far back to. It was a small day on the wind was outside. And (laughs) yes, yes, the stars were all in alignment. So I consider myself to be an architectural historian, which is primarily what we'll be talking about and old buildings and all that fun stuff as well. The laws go behind that. I was very artsy and math focused when I was in high school. And after not getting into uh, the art college of my choice, my dad suggested, well, why don't you just put the two interests together and do architecture, which I thought was a marvelous idea. I changed my major before I got to college, which I went to Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. Yay, cornfields and soybean fields, because that's (laughs) pretty much all that's there besides the college. I mean, aside from, you know. You had no distractions at that point. So there you go. Oh, you found distractions. This is true. Yeah, Always. I mean, some of some of them good, some of them not not so good, or you know, debatably. That's college. Uh, good. But I did technically four and a half years of architecture. I probably should have changed my major at some point because during the architecture review process, when you're doing studio, you have to present your idea multiple times throughout the years. And I started having panic attacks during my presentation. So if that wasn't a glaring kind of clue that maybe we needed to pivot a little bit, I don't know what would have been. But the extra half a year was only because the program I was in required three co-ops or internships. And they changed the program requirements from three to two right before I graduated. And this was in like 2000 five to 2009, like right when the economy was starting to tank. Oh yeah. The first, the real estate bubble. Yeah. So a lot of firms weren't taking on interns or, you know, somebody to volunteer to shadow them. And most, you know, if they're not paid, you don't have the time to go get a second job because they're like a 40 hour week commitment, which is a whole nother issue. But I had the kind of grace of having two of these internships already done and the program requirements changed fall semester. So I essentially just had to wait out the semester because I switched what my track was. So I had a gap year before I went on to graduate school and you need graduate school for architecture because nobody really hires you unless you have the extra maybe two years minimum. And in that time, I had already decided I was not going to pursue an architecture master's just because of my final review was such a disaster. Like my design was so complicated that I couldn't get things to render, which led to some questions during the review process. Because with the program you have to render, it essentially takes all of your line work as well as applies materials to it. And at the time, it was not sophisticated enough to do glass for all of these angles I had. So I kept crashing the program. And I decided to like quickly paint some stuff, which, you know, you got the idea of what it was, but the reviewers were not very happy with it. So I ended up in the middle of these presentation, like not being able to breathe. And then I was crying because I couldn't breathe. And I'm trying to answer these questions that they're essentially just asking the same question over and over again. Like, well, why did you do this? And I was like, because I was following the contours of the land and they were like, but why? And I was like, why do I need to explain like in such precise detail, like, you know, because the gods of the ground spoke to me and thus I just, 
Oh, it was just, you know, it was very difficult for me to get my point across. And at that moment, I decided I'm not going to do that. And I just happened to have a internship lined up for the summer that was at the Cleveland Restoration Society. And they are a group that does some preservation work, kind of, in Cleveland. They specialize in low home interest loans. So okay. let's say if you were doing a project to your house and you needed a loan, they could come in and make sure, you know, is your house historic? Is this in keeping with a historic fabric and, you know, going about matching you up, I think with a, a bank with a lower interest loan, because you were trying to keep your house historic. Now, mind you, this is all from memory. So I'm going to <laughs> apologize to that foundation if society, if I'm not quite lining up with what they do, but they, um, that was my kind of first taste of historic preservation. Cause I hadn't heard about it because my school didn't have anything oh, wow. with it. Cause architecture, it kind of goes hand in hand, but when you talk about programs, like the architects are very focused on, we get to design, we get to build from scratch. Whereas historic preservation people are, we have a building, let's save it and let's make sure that, you know, it's kept within certain time periods and certain materials, making sure features and materials are saved. And not so much with architecture. With architects, you tend to get a lot of egos. And I don't know, they, they don't necessarily work together very well. At least they didn't at my school because we didn't have that program. But I finally got that taste of it. And I really like, you know, the idea of kind of saving a place or preserving it. Yes. So I decided to do either historic preservation or architectural history. They're kind of closely related. I applied to a couple of different schools and ultimately chose to go to the Savannah College of Art and Design for my master's, which is perfect because there's so many old buildings. In oh, yes, there is. It is wonderfully preserved because in the like 80s, 90s, they didn't have money to tear down the buildings and build new ones or people interested in doing that. So the college kind of swooped in and went, hey, this is a great idea for the campus. And <laughs> the campus is entirely like the historic downtown area because you get so many different buildings in so many places and it just like it benefited the city very well. It was a wonderful place for grad school. Loved my program. I loved most of my teachers. Did not like the fact that I had to do a foreign language test, which is required because I chose the architectural history path. Okay. Um, so you had to translate something in another language and pass, but they never gave you the tests back to see if what? you did fail how you failed and what you could have done better because I think I failed it like five times. Language is not my strong suit and they didn't have any way of being like, okay, you need help. Here's a class to take because SCAD didn't focus on language. It focused on art. Yes. So it was essentially like, you need to do all of this yourself. And you got to have that feedback. You really do yeah. in order to not fail it a sixth time or a seventh time. You really, maybe the first time you could have had it done failed it and be like, okay, this is where I messed up at. If it wouldn't have been for two more credits of foreign language, I would have had a dual degree, but I could not go for it. Of Me and foreign language are not getting along as well. I'm going to give a shout out to my best tutor that saved me through all my classes, Garrison Copeland. I know you're probably listening at some point. You made it through language and you know how, and you know why. So thank you. <laughs> 
it, language is hard. Like I, I don't know what it is. Like it's, it's. I've been trying. My brain doesn't process it as well. I don't know what it is. But it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it is here. You know, we don't aren't surrounded by it like with European true. countries. Like you drive a couple hours and you're like two or three countries over sometimes, and you don't get that exposure here because most people that come over, you know, if you're the child, grandchild, somewhere, you know. Along the lines, it's the yeah, language transition. Like they typically, like historically, gave up the language so they would yeah. seem more American. Now, you mentioned within your degrees here. What? What were? Did you have two separate degrees of focus in your bachelor's before going into your master's? So, with my bachelor's, I have the a degree in architecture, which is a bachelor of science, which sometimes I, I do say that that was a bit of a BS degree because I don't actually <laughs> use it, but I minored in art. So I had a lot of art classes as well. Okay. In there. So it's, you know, one of those degrees with a little minor that, you know, debatable how useful that minor was. And then my master's degree is a master's of fine arts and architectural history. So that's the connection here that kind of goes with it. So there is a lot of information when it comes to historical preservation, architectural history, the NHPA. Can you give us a little bit of overview before we start going into a little bit more detail? Sure. So start with the NHPA. Go for it. So the National Historic Preservation Act, or NHPA, was put into place in 1966. It is a federal partnership between the federal government, the states, tribes, and local governments. And it's supported by federal funding for preservation activities. It also kind of feeds into national park services. And you also get the Section 106 process out of this. But historic preservation all ties back to this. And there's a federal level, a state level, and a local level. So we're going to, so we have the 106, we've got 110, we've got the overarching act here, but it's amongst one giant piece of legislation, essentially. Yes. Do we want to jump around and talk about the different sections or is that just kind of our start introduction and then we'll work our way back to it? I think that's the best way possible. Are you okay with that? Yes. Yeah. And some of it is because I work more at a local level than a federal leather level. So a lot of this, I haven't worked with it in a number of years. So like I'm familiar, but not the, the memory is a little hazy. <laughs> it, hey, but you know, every bit of knowledge goes a long way. That's what we're, we're learning from friends. That's the whole point here on it. We're sharing information that we have and going because it is the common person here. That's the key thing here that it goes down to and using your knowledge. So you mentioned a little earlier talking about your introduction into college, you realize, hey, I'm going to transition over with because of I was having these panic attack and anxiety attacks that were coming into place. As a teacher, I like to ask a little bit further with epistemology, kind of how do we know what we know kind of deal. Why that shift over to historical preservation? Because you have this degree and you've gone down to SCAD and how did, how did you get here? So architectural history and historic preservation are really closely connected. So with my degree, it was a lot of research, a lot of writing papers, a lot of knowing history, like the development of cities over time, what high architecture is, what vernacular architecture is, 
as well as studying the architecture of other language or other languages, other places. <laughs> so you can kind of see like how like British architecture may have come over and influenced something from America or say like the Japanese and Chinese kind of thing. And like, you can see like certain, you know, styles of architecture are inspired by you know, different countries, different materials. Like in Savannah, there's a house down there that I think is made out of steel or metal or some, it has a lot of metal elements on it. And that was because at the time, whoever owned that house was involved. I want to say it was steel, but he did one of those things that he was like, well, if we can do it in wood, we can do it in metal. And, you know, yeah, I agree with that. I think that's really, really doable. I'm not the researcher to that house. I, I would rather have a, a metal house than a wood house. That's just my personal opinion. There, there's drawbacks to that as well, as well, because, you know, metal rusts and it's heavy and true. And with some of the wood, you know, it depends. Is it old growth wood or is it new wood, which comes up a lot in my job because people want to replace their like old wood elements and they're okay or just need small repairs. And they're like, Oh, but you know, this newer thing, no, the wood we use nowadays is new growth wood. So it hasn't aged and it doesn't have that strength. So okay, you, you get, you know, you have a lot better quality wood from houses that were built a century ago. That's why they're but, still here today. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some of them have like really great details because they were kept up over time and other houses, you know, did not have the same love and care. Yeah. You have your, they call it stick builds that are just quick, throw up together, put it up there and go. And then you have those ones that spent more time with the different types of wood that most of the people were building it off their property and spending that extra time going into it. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions within your field of work. Is there any that you would like to clear up before we start diving into the topic a little further? I think some, one of the misconceptions is that as a historic preservationist, we want to save all of the old houses. We'd like to, but for most of us, we know there is a point that you have to let a house go. Because, you know, sometimes people who have had the house, they haven't had the money to upkeep it or it got lost to time or something and, or it's been constantly changed over time enough that it doesn't look like what it originally uh, did. So there is a point for most of us that, you know, I don't know, the other foot kind of drops that it's like, yes, this house is great, but we can't save it because either there's a large monetary factor or, you know, it's just nothing but like, Toothpicks holding it up. There are a variety of reasons. And it differs from person to person as well. Because some people will argue, well, you can spend all of the money you want and like you'll still save the house. It's just you need to find somebody with all of that funding. And that's not easy. (laughs) No, no. There's been some houses that like they're completely like all of their interior stuff is completely gone. Like barely any walls holding it up, no floors. And like the people who do them, like they have to have like a bottomless pit of money. They're somewhere in Painesville, Ohio. I don't remember. I think it's the steel mansion house, but they show you a picture of what it looked like because it had a long history of, you know, being someone's grand estate um, to being apartments to like being boarding houses. And eventually like there was a fire there. They left the roof open so over the course of time with all of that water 
the entire Ooh. interior was just gone. Like yeah. you could see if you were to stand in the basement, you could look all the way up to the sky because there was literally nothing. And the owners of the place now wow. have a picture of what it looked like. They had to have some very deep pockets because you essentially lost everything of the house except that outer shell. I mean, you didn't even have the roof. But to see that come back from there, it is wonderful and fantastic. And they did a really good job trying to recreate the interior details. So it's not like historic outside, modern inside. It looks historic inside as well. So that's good. Yeah, we've got a building in downtown Canton that was called the Jones was called the Jones Building, where they've gone through and they've redid it. And they had to, and it used to be it's several different government agencies had been inside of it. And then it was abandoned for a while. Then a company came in and gutted it, saying that they were going to make a studios out of it. And then eventually that failed. And they went in front of the zoning board several times of can we get funding from the county to be able to redo this? Okay, can we get some state funding? And it's just wrapped up and they haven't fully opened it up to the public. But it's amazing to see they have the same picture. Here's the pictures before. Here's the pictures of what it's going to look like. And here's how we did our process to get our funding, how much it costs. And I go, okay, are you going to get your return on investment? Hopefully, hopefully you will get something back from But thank you for bringing this building back from the brink that has so much meaning to Canton. So thank you for those people that do have those deep pockets to do that. If makes the world a little bit better place because I feel like in the United States, we lose a lot of our histor- historical buildings very quickly. And- yeah, typically in the name of progress. Sometimes, you know, they tear down the building because, oh, we're going to do this great thing. And then it's just a parking lot for like decades. Yeah, that's, that's very sad to see that whenever that does take place here. So can, I want to say congratulations on your new job that you just got promoted into. Am I allowed to say that? Is, is that? Yes, yes, it is official as of today. All of the paperwork got in on time because that, that was a fun Friday. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Can you tell us a little bit of your background work experience? Because you said you sure. had your two internships and things like that. Guide us in the direction. Yeah. So after I graduated my degree, there was a bit of an economic crisis. So I spent a year working two retail jobs, which really builds up your customer service skills. And when you have your master's, it confuses a lot of people with why are you here? Um, Because it's really hard to get into your field, especially during the early, you know, 2010s, when all of the job postings were like entry-level position, Five years experience. Yes. Which, <sighs> how, how do you expect, if it's an entry level job, how can we have experience? Yep. So I worked those two jobs for a year and then I got a position with AmeriCorps, uh, which was based out of Columbus. And I did what is called a History Corps program. So the AmeriCorps program, which is run by the Ohio History society center they changed right when i was there and i think they've since changed back but it was i've most recently known it known it as the ohio history center okay and the americorps program placed volunteers in museums or kind of local government entities Depending if you were in a museum you were helping the museum and if you were at one of the local government entities you were typically and doing some kind of historic property survey, okay, which was what I was doing. And I did so for a year because the funding was only 
for a year. And the AmeriCorps program is great in that it got me experience, but pay is kind of peanuts. Entry level. Yeah. It was during the Obama care when they were voting on that. And the AmeriCorps program is tied into, I believe it's Congress, but with the Obamacare, like you get really baseline health insurance with AmeriCorps and okay. Congress voted not to include the Obamacare. Like we had substandard insurance. So like it is a good program, but it's not without its flaws. With any, unfortunately, beginning spots, there's always little things that pop up that can be good and can be bad. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like overall, it was really good. I don't know how it's changed in the past decade or so. We're getting older. Yeah. One of my coworkers was asking the other day, he was like, oh, you know, we're putting together something, you know, for the department. If you could summarize your experience, how many years have been working? And I always think I've only been working like three, maybe five years in my field. And I did the math and I was like, oh, I've been doing this stuff for nine years. Yep. This will be year 10. No, yeah. this will be year 11 for me in education. It Time flies by and just wait till we're in our 50s and we're sitting there going, I'm going to be a little man in my front yard going, get off my lawn. And it's just, that's just be my little nature. Katie always makes fun of me already for me and technology don't get along that well. And then people, a lot of her friends go, and he has a podcast. And I go, yeah, <laughs> just go to the part of it. So again, back, welcome to your promotion. Well-deserved. You put in the time, you put in the effort. I mean, it, it goes a long way and it shows that you've done so. And especially with the journey of putting in that extra work. So anybody I recommend if you have to do retail work for a little while to get that, to be able to get into that position, it builds character, as you said, and you know, gets you a little bit of thick skin, but also it buys your time because you don't want to put yourself in a negative situation out of the gate too. This is true. And you also build connections because yes. at AmeriCorps, I met one of my friends and future now former coworkers, because one of the gals who had the position before me was on contract for the city I was with. And she ended up getting a job at an environmental company that was doing quality control for a telecommunications carrier for their 106 in NEPA. What's the acronym NEPA, if you don't mind? There's so many acronyms. It's like within in education, we have vegetable soup of all the different acronyms and the same with the new deal plan look in history of all the acronyms and all the different acts that are put out there. Yeah. National Environmental Protection Act, before I forget. Gotcha. But when she went over there, a position had opened up shortly after. And because I knew her, I ended up getting a job there. So I was quality controlling for telecommunications entity with their program, which was a fantastic foot in the door because as things wound down with that client, I was able to get out into the field and do historical building survey, which is part of the Section 106 NEPA process where you're actually in the field looking for historic structures as well as photographing them, kind of assessing what their condition is and just having all sorts of fun because that can typically be done with archaeologists as well. Yes. Because they kind of slide in next to the historic preservationist with our work is kind of done in tandem, especially for the federal level stuff. Yeah. Cause you said there's state, there's local and then federal. So mm -hmm. you've got those three different 
tag teams or triple threat match and see where it's kind of going. But uh, so the National Register of Historic Preservation, what is that? Now, this is something I haven't really been asked to explain. So we're going for a direct quote because that'll probably be easiest because working it. in historic preservation, I know what it is, but I don't think I've ever had to explain it to somebody. So the National Register of Historic Places is the official list of the nation's historic places worthy of preservation. It's authorized by the National Historic Preservation Act, the National Park Services, National Register of Historic Places is part of a national program to coordinate and support public and private efforts to identify, evaluate, and protect America's historic and archaeological resources. So you saved us about 45 minutes there of time to put it down to a direct quote. Did this, this was organized under the NHPA, correct? Yes. That that was kind of set in. Where did we get the idea from this? Is this something that we got from overseas? Is this something that we kind of established here eventually in the United States? Because of 1966, that's a, we've been around for a bunch of years by this point as a nation. So my memory is, again, a little hazy on some of the background of this, but a lot of the historic preservation, especially when it's a local level, it is started by some group of little old ladies that wants to save a particular historic site, Mount Vernon. Okay. Which it, you know, George Washington, yep. you know, it got decrepit and then a group of ladies decided instead of tearing it down, it needed to be saved. And Savannah has a similar history of a lot of old buildings that were going to be demolished. Maybe not a lot. I think there was one specific one, maybe the Mercer house. It's been yes, a while. That definitely was one of them that was being brought up a huge stink. I remember reading about that a lot being from Georgia. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, being in Savannah, it made like the perfect case, but it was one of those, you know, it kind of stemmed out of, I want to say a lot of smaller movements, but I think that's just me stringing facts together without fact checking. So. Well, I can believe it that small groups is what ultimately does change history. You got to start grassroots and then you start building connections out and it, and it grows. And I love my LOLs, as I call them, the little old ladies, because at the end of the day, they've, they do know how to connect locally, connect with their neighbors, connect with the local shops, and it ultimately starts spreading information out there. And most of the time when they're doing it, they are actually getting their information correct. They're not just randomly throwing words out there. Now, we've You mentioned earlier with like 10, the 106 and 110, that is with the NHPA, what, what is the 106 section and what is the 110 section? Okay, I'm not as familiar with 110, again, because I haven't used it as such. So 110 called on the federal agencies to establish the preservation programs and designate federal preservation officers coordinating the historic preservation activities. So this is where a lot of the state historic preservation offices come from, or as they're very commonly called within the preservation commun community, SHPOs. Each state has one. So these are the state agencies that monitor all of the historic preservation for the state. They review all of the Section 106s that come in, as well as federal tax credit projects and national proposed national register listings, whether you know for a district, for a single property. Like that is all them at the state level. And then you've got the kind of the federal one, which I want to say that just has the secretary 
of the interior? I am not sure. And I'm sure somewhere somebody listening to this knows me and is like, Kim, you should remember this. <laughs> I work at a local level and all of this is kind of like faded out my ear as I try to remember everything I need to know for my job. Yeah. Cause as with any job, you've got so many balls you're juggling up and down, trying to keep in place. And we're not completely able to, we, what is it? We use like only like 10% of our brain out of the full like hundred. So we can't keep everything there. And I'm sure when we get off, it'll pop right back up in your brain at some point and be like, Oh, there it is. But that's okay. That's okay. That's kind of part of it. So you're at the local level, correct? Yes. And do you answer to the state and then federal, or do you, are you just straight local? We're straight local. So it kind of ties in a little bit with section 106, but with section 106, if there is a federal nexus for a project, like if you're putting up a telecommunications tower, the license needed for that tower is issued by the FCC, which is a federal agency. So that ticks off your section 106. So in doing section 106, the company who is proposing this project, they have they typically don't have their own staff to do this. It is typically a consulting agency that has professionals. Typically it is, you know, a historic preservationist and archaeologist that will handle this. But once that kind of federal box is ticked, they kind of hand it over to their professionals. Most of the time, they generally know what they're doing, or at least have been through this before, especially the larger companies. And they'll be like, okay, we have a federal project and it's up to the consultant to go, okay, you know, uh, we need to determine an area that we're going to search in. And each state kind of varies of what that, but it's the area that you're looking for that um, from the project that the potential resources could be affected. So you kind of get that like search radius and then you have to look, are there any national register places in there, whether that's a single structure or, you know, is a part of a historic district in there or is there a significant archeological site as well? So you're kind of looking both above and below ground at the same time, but you have the different professionals that are investigating that because as a historic preservationist who has been, out in the field surveying houses, we don't look underground because that's not our specialty. Mm, and yes. I'm sure the archaeologists are very thankful about that because <laughs> I'm sure I probably would have ruined a number of things just not knowing what I was doing. Yeah, doing core samples and how far you have to be able to get as well within, I can't remember, they they say with each time period is a certain amount of inches and feet. I had an earlier episode on Will Fry that spoke in detail about that of, yeah, I have to go like this one tiny little square that I have etched out and I go down and I dig X amount of feet that I have to be able to filter that out. Then I go another X amount of feet and I have to hit X things. Then I have to bring in another individual. So it, it's a step-by-step process, but that's good in order to have that expert there. So we don't have Kim coming along and, you know, trying to dig a hole and all of a sudden just uh, messing up a whole thing of history. You're the above ground person. You're yes. the above ground. Yeah. So, you know, after you've determined if they're historic property or the potential for historic properties, You'll kind of determine, you know, does this project have a negative impact on said property, which can be a little, depends how you look at it. Okay. Because sometimes you'll be like, oh no, this does not have like a adverse effect. And you'll turn in your report, which is called the section 106. 
to the state and the state will be like, nope, adverse effect. And then you'll have to kind of go back and forth for your client and figure out how you're mitigating the problem. Um, okay. Because like with some of the telecommunications towers, it might be, well, we're just going to camouflage it as a pine tree. Yeah. Yeah. Those are terrible. You can see it from a mile away. Oh yeah. Cause they look like pipe cleaners. Yep. They do. They look entirely like pipe cleaners. Yeah. But you can hide some of the, te- the uh, telecoms things like as windmills or my favorite is cacti. That's I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, well, we, you know, we're kind of more East Coast as opposed to the West Coast. And like the Southwest has a lot of cacti. So that that was an interesting one to look for. But within the Section 106, you can occasionally be asked to identify if there are any projects that are of age. Okay. It is really rare because most of the time your client is going to be like, what's already listed? Some states go the extra step of what is historic, like what's of that age, which for the National Register of Historic Places, anything 50 years old or older as c- could be considered historic, but not necessarily listed because there's a list of requirements, I guess, that yeah. come to like the building itself, the structure, I guess, the site that it's located on, I guess, surrounding area significance. There's a lot I get to, to make anything a, a suitable candidate. <laughs> yeah. Now, is it more than just the the structure is more than just a building? Do y'all do like signs? What what all falls underneath a what you would call a historic preservation above ground? Yes. So I think technically ships are considered part of it as well, which is a little weird. I've never encountered that, but I want to say from memory that that was one of the weird things that has popped out, but you could be looking at a single house, something like a ranch, a farm. Do they do like the, uh, what is it? The restaurant signs sometimes? I'm just curious because sometimes the buildings are gone, but the signs are still left. I don't know. It's just weird. I don't know if the National Register does. The place I work for now has done that locally. It was a big boy. I think that was one that I, I read somewhere that got labeled the specific one. I was like, huh. Yeah, I can see that because it's technically, it is it is a place. It was associated with a place. So it, it has some history to it. But in evaluating the places for the Nat- National Register, there's a list of criteria that you okay. go through. What is this criteria? That's a lot. I'm sure with all this checklist out the wazoo, that's probably 10 pages long. It's not quite 10 pages. I'm trying to think. I thought it's only nine, right? (laughs) Just one. Maybe, maybe. So there is a nice historic preservation wrap that a group of grad students put together for a class. I'm going to write down a note to see if I can find this. It's, it's incredibly cheesy, but it's really well done. And it, gets like the point of cross of what you're supposed to, you know, to look for. So there's a list of criteria considerations. So you're looking at architectural or artistic distinction or historical importance, as well as, you know, has the building been removed from its original location? Is it still there? Is the place a birthplace or grave of a historical figure with outstanding importance, which, you know, that can kind of be subjective. But if you're looking nationally, you've got to think, you know, did that person make a big impact on America as a whole? Gotcha. 
a cemetery that derives from its its primary importance from graves of persons of importance, age, distinctive design elements, or historic events, as well as evaluating if a reconstructed building, when accurately executed in a suitable environment and presented in a dignified manner as part of a restoration master plan, and when no other building or structure with the same association has survived. So say, for an example of this one, you had some president's birth cabin that was reconstructed and there's no other you know, cabin examples anywhere around it. And it has been reconstructed exactly as it was originally built. Would that be considered historic? Which there'd be probably a lot of back and forth with the state because that's, you know, the kind of the question of if you rebuild a ship board for board, is it still the same Ooh, ship? That's a good point. Yeah. So you kind of get into some of that with, when you're evaluating and it, you know, based on person, based on state, you might have to agree to disagree. We're also evaluating a property primarily commemorative in intent if design, age, tradition, or symbolic value has been invested with its own exceptional experience and a property achieving significance with the past 50 years. So 1972 would be that date now, 50 yes. years. So very, very rarely you might be looking at something that is not quite 50 years old, but you can argue should be listed because it has historical importance. I don't have any examples off the top of my head, and it's one of the evaluation criteria that most preservationists know about but haven't used because it has to be some monumental kind of event that you want to go, well, I know it's not wait, of age, wait, yeah. but we need to consider that. Like, we need to save this for the future. And most of the time, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. so if you're looking True. to evaluate, like, you're like, oh, hey, this really random thing that happened was really important because it set off the chain of X, Y, Z. That's, yeah, that's very a, a true statement, especially with, as you've mentioned, things deteriorate, things don't get treated properly over the years. And so if we can catch it earlier while it's still intact, it'll save us hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially for having to, to rebuild it later in that process. This, I'm going to make a real random comment here of, Hindsight is 2020. I wonder how we're going to think about that in the next couple of years with the year of 2020 and how everything kind of went sideways. I don't know. There's something to think about. I know 20, we used it for 2020 vision, but yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll see that it goes. Kind of ironic that that also happened in 2020 when, you know, COVID hit and like everything kind of crumbled and cascaded and all exactly. the craziness that happened. We'll see where we're looking at that as time goes along. So there is the state, the local, the national registration here. Can you give us some insight in this process? You gave us a little bit of information saying that you file like the 106 to your state and you get it back and you kind of negotiate back and forth. What is that process to make that paperwork being out in the field? Like what do you, how does that work? So when you're out in the field, typically you've already identified what your buildings are that you have to go look at ahead of time. So I did a project in rural West Virginia that we were looking at potential adverse effects of windmills. Okay. So we kind of figured out like how tall they would be, where they'd be. And then, you know, you were going to these spots that had been identified 
and taking pictures of them so you could see, you know, what conditions they were. You have to write a report for the state, you know, kind of summarizing what the style is, as well as typically you'll look at windows because that's important. And sometimes it's indicative of style or at least a time period and materials. And you kind of look at the property overall, but not always necessarily because a lot of places don't have like grand gardens. It's some kind of little farmhouse in the middle of a field. And, yes. you know, most people don't think, you know, a field is important unless, you know, it's a large working farm. And when you're, say, in rural West Virginia, it's just in the middle of grass. Or That's at least true. it looks like grass. But for different federal agencies or just different state agencies as well, it depends if you're taking pictures from the public right of way or if you are taking pictures from people's property and going on their land, which for a lot of the work that I did earlier on in my career, it was doing pictures from the public right of way. So we couldn't jump over any fences. We couldn't go on anybody's lawn. We were on the street or on the sidewalk taking pictures and, you know, tough luck for us if a structure was behind a bunch of bushes or trees. Couldn't see it. Like sometimes it's nice to see it, but sometimes with all of that foliage, you're like, okay, this is clearly a non-adverse effect, which is a way to say like, it's okay. Whatever's going in there isn't affecting it because this, you know, it's either a non-adverse effect or it's an adverse effect. And for your client, you're trying to get to the non-adverse effect because that means they can go ahead and, you know, do whatever project that they're trying to do. So it, you know, it works, you know, both ways. For the later part of my career, when I was in Georgia, I was doing some transportation work. And for that work, you actually have the right to be on people's property. So legal trespassing. Woo! Yes. Yes. Which is not so much fun when you get somebody rolling up in a pickup truck. Pickup truck doesn't even stop before they're hopping out the call the car to holler at you. In the South, that can be very dangerous. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. And that's not like, you know, you're, you don't let the property owner know beforehand. You just show. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's some, you know, gray area of like how you're doing stuff and how you're treating property owners, which a lot of what I did when I was in Georgia, I was not okay with because I do things differently, but I like to function within a like set of very well-established rules and we do not bend the rules. So like, I didn't like going on people's property without their permission because I felt like I was trespassing. It did not matter who it was for. No, no. We all have our morals that we need to fall by. And that's a very important thing. Yes. And some of my coworkers had actually been shot at. They were typically archaeologists. And, you know, you're going in the woods and you're, you know, digging holes and, you know, they hear that pink you know, right by them. Because a lot of the times where they're digging is, say, a farmer's land. And even if it's wood, like, again, the archaeologists are typically a little bit better about letting people know they're going to be certain places, at least when I worked with the ones that I worked with, because that happens a little bit more frequently than it does to um, historic preservation is. So we'd go out, you know, wherever. Sometimes, the properties would be kind of abandoned. So you'd have to hike through tall grass or over fallen limbs of like trees and stuff. So it could get kind of interesting, especially when you needed to be on somebody's property. 
Because if it's, you know, from the right of way, like, oh, I can't see it, tough luck, but that's okay. I don't have any problems nine times out of 10. Yeah. Um, if you're in really, really rural places, you know, you run the hazards of people, but typically if you, if the, you were stopped and you explained what you were doing, especially if you were two women, people calm down real quick. We're not as threatening as, say, you know, two guys going out with clipboards with cameras because that, you know, people automatically think, you know, it's kind government. of the, the government's coming for me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and we did have to explain to people what it was because it was a government, like we were doing it because the government was doing some kind of work or, with, yes. you know, there was something associated with it. So not everybody, you know, is familiar with historic preservation. And honestly, most people weren't. And at a local level, when you're telling people that you're going to put in a roundabout or something, and you're taking out that old farmhouse that has always been there, but does not have any national significance, it's tough. Yeah, I can I can believe that because they have that sentimental value. That's also a landmark because that's the way I describe people where they go. I'm like, you want to go to that fork in the road, you're going to see the red roof barn off in the corner. You don't want to go that way. You want to go the other direction at that fork. And if you pass this mailbox that has Snoopy on it, then you're in the right spot. So, you know, it's a landmark thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and in the South, you have to watch out for more than just people when you are crossing over into property. And I remember we were meeting up one day and you had just something interesting on your keychain. And I was like, what is this? Can you elaborate on what was on this keychain of yours? Well, that is still on my keychain, but it is a tick key. And one of the things that happens quite often is when you're going into the tall grasses, especially I feel down south where oh, yeah. it's warmer. Oh, yeah. Is you run a really high chance of getting ticks. And the company I worked for was very, very concerned about this. So they gave everybody that started tick keys because it was a lot easier with those to get ticks off. So you weren't going in with tweezers or anything. Oh, yeah. You got to be very careful when removing a tick. There's a science. I actually got a what was it a tick maybe two that had bit me so i had used the key to take it off and i told my mom about it who is a nurse who you know i trust above like all else with most medical things and like we were you know she was like okay make sure you're watching out for you know symptoms of lyme disease make sure you don't have that the bullseye redness yeah, rocky you know, spotted fever and things like that yeah yeah, and then I, mentioned, I mentioned something like offhand to my boss and I got in a lot of trouble for not calling it in to our incident reporting line. Yeah. Cause that is, you're out there in the field working on that. Yeah. I, I can believe that. Yeah. Which I don't like talking on the phone to strangers. So it was, it was a very like, no, of course I didn't call it in. I called my mom. It's like, I'm going to do what I'm comfortable with, but they're doing it for liability yeah, reasons, they are. but that's, you know, something that pops up when I was, I want to say it was, it may have been, it was probably Virginia, but I was out in the field and we were photographing an abandoned house. You know, there were, you know, neighbors around, so it wasn't like ghost towny, but there was a, a stray dog and it was kind of like, okay, like you're always a little weary of the dogs, but nine times out of 10, like you know, they have an owner. They're like, Oh people, I'm so excited. Hey, yay. And this dog, like it was growling. So 
I was kind of like, okay, we need to be really careful. And I'd went back into the car for something because I forgot my compass. Because when you're doing photographs, you typically want to know which way you're facing because as part of the photo log that you turn in for the section 106, you have to put down like photo of south elevation taking facing like north by northwest. So you get pretty specific, but I come back out and that one dog had turned into like 20. Oh, pack mentality. Yeah. I don't know where they came from. I was like, I think they were living in that abandoned house. So I was with a field tech who I think was an archeologist. Regardless, I looked at her and I was like, get back in the car. One we're step not at photographing a time. this house. And like, we just did like a slow drive-by kind of thing so we could get photos. And this was one of them right away photos. So we didn't have to worry about going on property, but that was terrifying just to, you know, from one dog to all of these dogs that were not happy you were on their territory. Yeah. That's, that's no bueno. That's no good for, for no. sure. No. One of the locals came out afterwards and was like calming the dogs. And we were just kind of like, hi. Yeah. Thanks. We're, we're going to go. We're, we're taking pictures for the preservation thing. Not, it's a not nice my bad. House. Like you're <laughs> awesome. The puppies look cute. Just, just let's, they can stay over here. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the line of work. You never know what's going to happen. It's kind of the risks of the job, but also the rewards that can come from it. Cause there are benefits that do come from the registration listing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that comes in place, what you have this designation that you So, yes, you can lose the listing. So, after you list it, which, you know, it can be done in part with 106 if certain states requirement, or you could list something to the National Register independently. So, there are some people that actually want to get, you know, something listed. It's not part of a federal project. It is, say, a developer that is looking at redeveloping a main street into, like, some rentals and some storefront properties. If they get their project listed, they can potentially earn state and national tax credits. So these are kind of, you know, money that's coming in. I want to say they're grants. I've never worked with them. So while I know about them, I'm not quite familiar with them. But the uh, business owner can get money to go towards their project. Typically, you know, renovation, restoration, it does have to be an income producing property. So it can't be like your own personal house unless you can sing it really creatively. I don't think it can be like a place of worship because I think that's a little bit of like a gray area since they're, you know, they don't pay taxes. Again, not something I'm terribly familiar with, but I know that's one of the benefits. You can occasionally lose um, that listing, say, if the property gets torn down, if there is some alteration that has been done that is significant and changes the character of the house, so it loses its integrity, which integrity is another part of when you're listing a property that you're looking at. That makes sense that you want to make sure that it's following through and and getting things in place. Has there been, say, there's always two sides of history. Well, I say there's three sides and that stick with that. There's good, there's the bad, and there's that weird in between of if the connotation changes of the property, meaning that at one point, this is a very significant, just important, this figure was phenomenal. 
And then the history all of a sudden starts unearthing all this negative ideas that we thought were right, but now it's completely wrong. Is that a possible reason of a re revoking potentially of a registry? Or do you still want to preserve that history, even if it is a positive or negative situation? I mean, it could be. I haven't heard of any places that haven't, like that have been revoked for that reason. Like a lot of the reason something gets taken off is because it's been demolished. But when you nominate a property, you're not nominating the structure. You're nominating the like plot of land it's on as well. Okay. You can occasionally go out to look at a national register property and it's no longer in existence, but most people don't want to go through the process of delisting something. So okay. count the area. And I haven't been in the field in a while, so I'm not too sure. It's really rare that something isn't there anymore. And it's rare that things get delisted, but it's always a possibility. That's so, true. You know, kind of how much effort do you want to put into something? Cause most of the time it's like, okay, it's listed. It's fine. There <laughs> is no protection that getting listed. Okay. Often, oh, wow. So. I didn't realize I figured there'd be a, a giant protection on that. No, it's primarily if there's, you know, that federal work that's being done, that that property is taken into consideration of if it's, you know, an adverse effect on it. So huh. now whenever you're like working on this, I was reading through doing some research is that certificate of appropriateness. What can, for like modifying property, what, what really is that you mentioned it earlier when that was going on in Cleveland, where people were going through and you're talking about the, the new wood, the old wood, what, what kind of clarifies modifying a historic property? That's a lot. I know that's a, that's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. So with the certificate of appropriateness, that's done more at a local level and different municipalities might call it something different. And in terms of the section 106, you have consulting parties, which also have to be contacted for when you do federal properties. So local governments, maybe local historic societies, you know, people that might have interest as well as tribes, which there is a number of ways you can contact them. When you do telecommunications, they've got some kind of system set up that kind of generates what tribes are interested in an area, which you need to contact. Other agencies have different ways of figuring out who might be interested because, as you know, most of the tribes have been forcefully removed from yes. what their ancestral home Lands And that gets into lots of problems in the states that they've been moved to because you might have something that was once somebody else's ancestral place, but somebody, another tribe is living there now. Oh, yeah. So there's that overlap. And occasionally you will have some project that does have an adverse effect for multiple tribes. And it might be for different reasons. And you have to, you know, as a consultant, you have to work it out between tribes in a sense to see, but okay. You know, if you did X, Y, Z, would this help? And it might be okay for one tribe, but it won't be okay for another. Sometimes, you know, the tribes don't work well together due to, you know, centuries of opposing views or just bad blood between them. And then typically historical societies might not have too much of a say, or at least when I was consulting, they typically didn't unless it was, you know, that a historical society that was in a historic place and it was being directly affected or their view or, you know, 
something, they're t- they can typically be a little quieter. In, at least they're significantly quieter compared to the tribes because the tribes are kind of on top of stuff. You know, they've left ancestors behind. There's bones, there's stories, there's, there, there's lots of important things in comparison, with, whereas the historic places haven't been there as long. But with the local governments, they have their own list of properties that are important on a local level as well as they'll typically know about the national ones as well. So the place I work, one of our historic districts that the city has is also a national one. And it's not the only one, but it's one of the larger ones. So you get that brought up a lot. So you can have both those registrations. You can have both the local and federal. Yeah. And typically, you know, if something's national, I think it's also a local kind of listing. I mean, that's probably not the case for everything, but at least where I am in Columbus, Ohio, like that's the case. At least I think so. I don't staff the historic commission that oversees kind of the, um, some of the smaller historic districts and houses. So not a hundred percent sure, but 95. I'll take it. That's passing. (laughs) Yes. And then, and like on a local level, if you are proposing a change to your house, anything exterior, and it's specifically where I work, because again, different municipalities have different guidelines. They have different city code. So, you know, different requirements, but where I am, if you do any exterior work, if it's a large scale repair, say you're replacing your roof, you're trying to replace your windows, you're adding an addition, you're doing some landscaping. That requires our office review. Oh, okay. So not everybody knows that, which as part of the kind of city entity, we have code officers. And the code officers are driven by local complaints. So their system is if somebody were to come and say, hey, my neighbor is doing X, Y, Z. I know they're not supposed to be doing that code officer division of our city will send somebody out, they'll investigate and they might issue a code order saying, you know, you haven't followed this part of city code, you're essentially breaking the law. They might issue a stop work order or a unsafe building structure order. So there's a a number of different departments that kind of help the historic preservation department out where I am. And like, we kind of work in tandem, but you know, there's some people that genuinely don't know they're in a historic district because the local ones aren't all marked. You just, you kind of know the boundary, or at least if you're in that neighborhood, you do. Because the, the people in the neighborhood are typically really proud that they live in some historic yes. district. Yeah. And like, they'll let their neighbors know. And sometimes, you know, depending where you are, some neighbors are very nosy and might be like, oh, that Bob over there, he's, you know, doing something he's not supposed to. So there, there's multiple systems of kind of checks and balances and you know sometimes things you know unfortunately do get missed and you figure out years later which is unfortunate yeah yeah and then you do have some people that ask before they do but for us whenever they do work they need to turn in an application typically current photos let us know what they are doing and that might generate some kind of plans whether that's site plan elevation drawings that's about it. There might need to be a section depending if you're dealing with something structural. And we'll also need to occasionally know the product information because per the city code I work with, 
if you're doing replacements, it's typically with like kind material and you're matching original dimensions. Uh-huh. So that's kind of how the city protects its historic properties. Cause you've got that in city code, which, mm-hmm. you know, is the law saying that you're doing this by X, Y, Z. And I want to say Columbus's was done late sixties, maybe seventies. I really should know this, but. I don't delve that far into code. We have certain sections. Wait, everybody has their own departments and jobs that I need to be able to focus into. And that's why we have that for a reason. Because if, if you put me into a English classroom and tell them to teach English, that's not my field. <laughs> There's only a certain level of cobbling together you can do before you start causing damage. Yes. And I don't want to ruin some kid's life down the road. We're like, oh yeah, I didn't learn about a gerund. Because Mr. Curtis didn't know about what Jaron's word. Mr. Curtis didn't know. <laughs> don't put me in front of English class. Don't, don't, don't do it. So I'm going to ask you a couple of futuristic slash opinion questions on what's going on with current issues and potential like past issues as well that have come up. So the first one I'm going to ask is what do you see as an important issue of preservation? that confront us in the next couple of years, potentially? And why do you think that's kind of important? Because as we're getting older, we're getting into from the 70s, we're now going into the 80s and the 90s as getting that 50 years. Yeah, a large issue that you know a lot of preservationists kind of skirt around is we don't save the architecture that's important to the people of color. Like okay, a lot yeah. of you know the African-American sort of history gets just plowed over because in a sense, you know, maybe historically, you know, they're not seen as important as well as areas where the income is lower. You don't get as much saving and there's not nearly as much in places there should be to help people out that are in those places of low income that might want to save their house to a histor- you know, what might be a historical standard. It's, instead, they have to cobble together whatever they can. And it's not good, you know, in the long run in terms of materiality and in terms of like the overall health of the house. So you get, you know, kind of the wage discrepancy as well. And, you know, as we're going, materiality is a huge thing because in the historic districts that we work with, other period of significance is like the early 20th century. So a lot of that is natural materials. But as you're looking at, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, the original material might be vinyl. And Ooh, you can kind of look at, you know, you've got to face that conversation of, okay, we don't view vinyl as a like green material. So how do you preserve that? Because as, you know, vinyl's plastic. Yes. As it ages, it gets brittle. Very, very much so. So there's a number of things like I don't hear talked about, certainly not at a local level where we don't have that funding. And like, we can't necessarily just, you know, cough up funding to be like, okay, we need to think about these problems. And say, you know, if we were to go into an area with a large concentration of people as color, we might not be welcomed because a lot of the historic preservationists are white people. So it's, it's a little difficult when we are trying to figure out how to help the people outside of like our areas, if they do want to preserve their houses, like what steps, like that's kind of in the departments, like 
we need to figure out how to tackle this, but we haven't quite got into the answer. I mean, some of it, you know, time, money, people, and not a sense of, you know, people don't want to address the problem is we don't have these staff people at the moment to like divert something to like kind of a like investigative outreach sort of thing. And I'm not going to speak for, you know, my department of, you know, if they're going to go down that route, it's just something like I personally like we to deal with a lot of things because like as of right now, there's a number of cities that are like, oh, we need to go green or, you know, we need to think about greener materials and one of the things in doing that is saving your historic buildings because yeah. they already exist. Exactly. So you don't have to tear them down to rebuild them. And typically, not always, they are built with higher quality materials than what's available nowadays. True. We're not quick. They weren't quickly throwing up a building. Uh, yeah. As we are, we see neighborhoods just being thrown up in months when really at that time, source, resources were limited or that if they were getting, it was very precious to have that. So they were really wanting to last long-term as you see that with in Europe, a lot of those buildings are going to outlast many, 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 many uh, generations of people. And many of them are older than our nation as a whole can continue. And they still ride every day because they were using those proper materials. Thank you for bringing that attention to that. Cause that is a very key issue that we do see. I know in Cherokee County, we're dealing with that issue as well for certain districts of mill houses that we had from the Canton cotton mill that have been getting tore down or also just being purchased up and being moved or people have gone in in the lower income, they consider it lower income areas and they're just being bought up by these companies and destroyed and built on. And that's a huge chunk of history that's just gone mm-hmm. entirely. And mills made up that's what made towns for the longest time. It's what made it worth. That was the industries were being brought in there. Now, the next one I've got is how do you see the relationship between historical preservation and, as I mentioned earlier, this economic development that started to change as our population is just getting massive and we are heavily a capitalistic society. So as we mentioned earlier, that phrase being chalked up to the progress of man how do you think population size is really going to affect us in the, in the future for historical preservation? I mean, COVID did knock a lot of people out, unfortunately. So hopefully we don't have any more like large scale natural disasters like that. But I think if, you know, that's the case and we do start running out of space, we're going to have to start as preservation as figuring out how to adaptive reuse you know, a lot of larger structures because you get things like warehouses and, you know, barns and stuff that might not be used for their original purposes, as well as how do you do additions that allow, you know, larger living spaces, multiple like units and still keep the historic integrity or, you know, do you just kind of allow it to further develop because this is history in the making? Yes. So I don't really have quite quite a good answer for that. I'm curious to see where it goes. And I know in the historic districts that we have, we've got one of the districts which has a large chunk of land where there was a kind of some kind of factory that no longer in production. So before I 
got to my job, they had sold off, you know, this big chunk of land in the historic district. And they were figuring out like, how do we redevelop it? Because historically, you know, it was a factory. It was a lot of open space. So the answer, you know, for the city was not, you know, we're preserving this entire swath of land as it is and not allowing any buildings of it. It was okay. We know this was some sort of industry. We're, you know, we're going to encourage the developer to use that influence in their design. So how are they incorporating that? And I got in, and that was the first historic commission within Columbus that I'd actually staffed. And so I got the tail end of how they were developing that building because they were, I think there was like a decade of work prior oh, to wow. just wrapping stuff up. And it was like, like, I want to say it was like three large projects when I was there and they still might have a little bit more to go, but they were trying to do some things for like condos or townhouses, something that allowed like single family residences, but it wasn't single family houses. So you could get more people in the smaller space, but still making it really you know, kind of fancy because a lot of stuff that goes up in these historic districts, like I couldn't afford to live in. So, I mean, you've got some of that like issue as well, but that's more so like developer as opposed to like historic preservation, because you don't want to be like, oh no, you can't build it, you know, because you're not, you know, it's not affordable and affordable it's kind of subjective depending who you're talking to, because some yes. of these developers would be like, oh yeah, this is the low end of things. And that's like, no, no, but you know, they go the opposite end of like, well, we don't want to do these all income housing. And a lot of times the areas you're in don't want to see that as well. Cause they think, you know, it brings crime, which I, we won't go down that rabbit hole. Now you have all these different work that you've worked with all these different jobs of building yourself up to the system. If you could go back in time or be on a current time frame of working with any piece of historical preservation, what would it be? It could be in the United States. It could be in another part of the world. What would it be? Ooh. That's a challenge. Yeah. I've never had anybody ask me that. This is why I ask the hard questions. Oh yeah. They're good to think about it. I mean, yeah, I might do something like over in more so like Western Europe. They have a lot stricter historic preservation laws in cool. Europe just because, you know, you've got so much older. Thousands of years sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think it might be cool to do something over there. Certainly something over in England. But because, again, the, the stricter, you know laws just to kind of help out. I suppose if I were to go back in my career, I'd probably take a couple more classes or do some more hands-on work because that would have helped me out now because most of my like background is more history-based. So the architectural history, you know, it's both good and it's bad because you don't have the hands-on experience. So now when I'm trying to explain some of these things to people of what they need to be doing, like my coworkers have the advantage of they've worked on stuff or, you know, they've done years of survey. So it's like, Oh yeah. Your windows, you just need to do X, Y, Z, rehang the weights, rope the window. And I'm like, windows still solid. 
<laughs> like well, I get, how? Like, yeah. yeah, like I sometimes I can you know get from point A to point C, but people want that B filler, and I don't necessarily have that. And I will say my coworkers are fantastic. If when I don't have that, they can explain it to me, and I can kind of regurgitate it to people. Especially my my boss is fantastic with explaining things. You gotta have. That's why it's teamwork. You gotta oh, yeah. have. You gotta have that team. So now, for my international listeners here, those that are in England in Western Europe, you should reach out to me, and we can be able to coordinate this. Uh, this this Kim, I have been able to get two people hired in different pieces of work, or had someone reach out and ask. I have one piece that got used in a study. I had one person that was able to get a job out of state because a listener was able to pick up on it. So you never know. You never can tell. I will just clarify. We're not looking to move out of Ohio or, or at all. You don't have to move. You just, you get but to not, be a and part I said, of a vacation it a to like Western Europe would be really nice. There you go. You're supposed to go for a honeymoon in 2020. So there, there you go. Just partaking and just, just a little bit, just open, open the door a little bit. You do like your Ohio. You are, you are Ohio people. Yes. My yes, wife says that. And it was, it didn't happen. We sold in Georgia. Love you, Katie, if, if you want to appear back later on this. Uh, but um, as we start to wind down here and start to kind of come to an end, is there any last minute things? This could be off completely left field or it could be we're not in dealing with our topic or it could be additions into our topic. Do you have any things that you would like to be able to share with this audience? You have the open floor and uh, that is a very intimidating thing to have. Yeah, I know we kind of hopscotched around section 106 quite a bit. And I mean, there is a more refined process if you look at the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Okay. Um, they're a, another group as well that kind of ties in with the national acts, but they are DC-based and they have a fantastic museum that they operate out of because I took a couple classes with them that were uh, the, the building that they have is fantastic but primarily around I mean for education if there is an adverse effect on a property and it needs mitigated sometimes you know they'll be asked to step in and kind of help the two entities that are arguing with each other, you know, find some sort of resolution. Sometimes they don't, but they're there for that as well. And there's, you know, plenty of other resources online. If anybody's interested in, you know, helping out their local communities, they can look to see if there's any historical review boards I know Columbus is always kind of looking for people that are willing to help out, whether on the historic commissions or on the general planning commissions, because the way the department I work with is set up is we have general planners as well as historic preservation. Okay. People, I mean, I think we're technically considered planners as well, but with my architectural history background that I still haven't quite felt comfortable with taking on that title because it's like, I don't have the education in that, but. You pick it up along the way. Sometimes it just it takes a while yeah. to get used to accepting a new title because you have to think a little bit different. But we are our own worst enemies whenever we come to being critical. Yes, I mean you know if people want to help out. There's always local you know historic groups as yes, well. Yes, historical societies. Yep. Yeah, they're great. One of my friends put together some kind of group, and I 
sadly have not looked into it too much, but she's looking for kind of volunteers in the Cleveland area for historic preservation and kind of helping out the local community and kind of figuring out a good way forward, you know, for those people that don't have as much representation. Because one of the things that she helped out with was a, I want to say it was some kind of very important structure for the Latino community and making sure like that was kept and restored. And man, I feel bad. I don't have all of the details, but there's been a lot of things going around that I've been trying to keep on top of, but she does a lot of really cool historic preservation stuff. And, you know, I encourage people, you know, if they want to speak up to do so, because, you know, commissions a lot of the times take public comments for section 106, they're supposed to have a public notice. So that's typically in the newspaper and people can write in with, you know, their concerns as well as if they think things are an adverse effect, you know, there's ways to get involved. It's just not a lot of people necessarily know about them because, you know, when you're doing a, you know, large project and you want to get something too, do you really want to tell everybody, you know, how they can get involved because it might hold up your project? No, that's true. You never, never can tell. It's, you know, it's good for people to know there are ways you can speak up. It's just sometimes people don't tell you about them. Yeah. And so shout out to our historical society individuals that volunteer because a lot of it is volunteering your time and make it putting your voice out there to be able to get this. And it starts at that grassroots. So every individual can be able to make that change. I encourage you to step out there if you have a passion to, to do so. They would gladly love to have you. And shout out to Cherokee County Historical Society for letting me be involved in some recording histories over the years, because that's something that I love doing, hence why I've eventually turned into the podcast stuff here. So if someone wanted to get into this field, what would you recommend saying someone that's, say, in middle school, high school, or starting into college, or maybe later on in life, what would you recommend for them? I mean, if they're like middle school, high school, even college volunteer at their local historical society, or if there is a park to go there as well, because I started off, I started off with the Cleveland Restoration Society, but I did a lot of work with the James A. Garfield National Historic Site as well, because like I developed my public speaking skills and it had not been for them pushing me to start giving tours. I wouldn't have started volunteering or working at the Juliet Gordon Little Birthplace as well as kind of, you know, that kind of led me to the speaking aspect of my job now because I run the commission, one of the commissions as the the staff person. (laughs) So like that, you know, those are really good and, you know, kind of sucks not to be paid, but it's, it's, you know, the experience, you know, kind of shakes out in the long run there. If, you know, you're looking for schooling, there are schools that have historic preservation. There are, I think, are still only two schools in the country that do architectural history, and that is the University of Virginia and, of course, Savannah College of Art and Design. I haven't looked at schools in, like, the past decade, so I'm not sure if there's other places that have been added, but, you know, if you don't quite want to go through the route of architecture to architectural history, you can start off in historic preservation. You can start off in general history. You can do anthropology. I mean, if you really want to, you could do archaeology and then hop on over. But I mean, that's all personal preference, but they're all fields that you know are connected to each other. And sometimes you can just, you know, 
slide over for your master's degree because typically you do need those and you know you could do that i mean even public history architectural history historic preservation you know there's lots and if you don't so much like the history aspect but you like thinking about how you know cities are designed you know public planning or urban design true yeah so there are ways, especially like if you're like, this sounds interesting, but like, it's not quite what I want to do. There's kind of little fringy things that you can pick up on. It's good. Always. There's, there's always something out there and it always connects together and you're building your portfolio, building your knowledge as well. And one thing it's not for you, maybe become another thing. It's just trial and error. That's true. Thank you for giving us those insights and thank you for spending your time on this Sunday afternoon coming in from Ohio to Georgia through Zoom and communicating with us. It's been a pleasure to get to talk to you. I'm sorry my wife didn't get to say hello today as she had to wind up going to work. I wish I would have snuck on a little earlier. Stinking vegetables and me deciding like things need to be done last minute. But it has been my pleasure to uh, sit and talk to you and walk you through some of this and some of what I do. Yeah, it's, it has been fun. If you have any questions, listeners, you can email me at Cade, which is C-A-D-E at learningfromfriends.com. And I will reach out to Kim if there's I can't be able to get you in the right direction. She mentioned earlier a lot of different resources that you can be able to look out as well because there's a lot of knowledge out there. And this was cool. If Hopefully, it will encourage someone to or multiple people or a whole entire movement to look in your local community, look in the national areas because of history is around us. History is being made every day. So I want to thank every listener that comes in, whether this is your first time, whether this is your 30th time listening through each one of you are very important to me. And if you would like to learn more, you can follow me on Twitter on it's learning from friends podcast. You can be able to do that on Facebook as well, Learning From Friends Podcast. I'm sorry, I don't post a lot, but I do put up the episodes when they release, which is every other Monday of the month. So you'll get two episodes a month, unless it is a two-part episode, which I will do back-to-back weeks as well, if that happens, because I don't want you to have to wait two weeks for these, these things in between. Have a Patreon page set up. So if you like to donate a little bit of, yeah, fingers crossed, uh, donate just a little bit back to, even if it's a dollar, five dollars, I spend anywhere between four to 12 hours just to make a single podcast episode. And there's a lot of different materials that have to be mixed in together. I like to buy new materials for microphones, updating software. You can be able to help contribute to that. I am a teacher. And as we all know, teachers, we make good money, but we invest it back into our classrooms a lot. So this would give me an opportunity to be able to invest some time back that way. So have a wonderful day, everyone. Be safe. And as the catchphrase, as you all know, as we leave out today is, don't forget to let your curiosity fly high. This is Kay Curtis from Learning From Friends. Have a wonderful day. Um, 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 um.